Beloved, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And verses 16 through 20. Mark 1, verses 16 through 20. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to this new section of the Gospel of Mark, we pray that by your Spirit you would instruct us, rebuke us, correct us, train us. We pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit you would nourish us upon Christ and that we, like these first disciples, would be followers of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you will be uh, familiar with the book uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a, it's a modern classic. Uh, and one of the things that uh, Packer brings out in the introduction to this, that those of you that read it will remember, is the importance of recognizing that growing as a Christian isn't merely growing in knowledge and in doctrinal or theological acumen. These things are important. We do want to know uh, about God. We want to learn about God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to know about the works of God and, and all of these things. But there can be a problem when all we gain is knowledge about God, but our relationship with God doesn't change. Uh, we know that knowledge can puff us up make us arrogant, think that we are superior to others because we've gained theological or doctrinal knowledge. But the whole point of the exercise of studying the Bible is not to gain facts about the Bible or about God. It is to know God personally, to walk with Him, to grow in Him, uh, to serve Him. And so Packer, uh, in his introduction, says this, Our aim in studying the Godhead, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study and our helper, helper in it, so he must himself be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. It was for this purpose that revelation was given, and it is to this use that we must put it. Our study uh, here in our evening services 
uh, is in the Gospel of Mark, and I've entitled our series, Knowing Jesus. Uh, Notice I didn't entitle it, Knowing About Jesus. It's Knowing Jesus. And as we study uh, the Gospel of Mark, as we uh, walk through together the Gospel of Mark, uh, the aim ought not to be simply that we want to know our Bibles better, but rather that we would know Christ, that we would know him. Beloved, Christ is not just a doctrine. Christ is not just a theological category in a confession or a catechism. Christ is a person, and he lives. He lives on the right hand of God, and we have the very privilege by grace through faith of being united to him and knowing him perfectly. And so we need to be careful because Satan is very crafty and he would make us think, well, as long as we are sort of reading our Bibles and reading a theology book from time to time and, and, and getting acquainted with the uh, truths of Scripture that we're, we're sort of okay. The aim and the end of preaching, the aim and the end of worship, the aim and the end of our study of God's Word is to know God, amen? It's to know Christ personally. Christ is not... Just a doctrine. He's a person, and he's altogether lovely. And so as we study the book of Mark, let us remember this, this aim, to know Jesus, to know Jesus. Well, as we come to this uh, section of the gospel uh, of Mark, we've already learned uh, many things about Jesus from uh, the prologue in verses 1 through 13, and, and thereafter, uh, we learned in verse 1, of course, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is no ordinary prophet. He's no ordinary teacher. He is uh, the eternal Son of God in the flesh. In verses 2 through 8, uh, we learn about John the Baptist, and he's referred to as the forerunner of Christ. He's been uh, prophesied about in uh, the prophets, uh, in Isaiah and elsewhere, and he is the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In verses 9 through 11, uh, we have John baptizing Jesus. Uh, This is a baptism of repentance, not because Jesus needs to repent, but because we do, and he's identifying himself with his people. Uh, And so it's at that baptism as well that his public ministry is inaugurated. And so God the Father uh, from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends uh, uh, as a dove upon Christ. Uh, reflecting the the Spirit, empowering him for the public ministry uh, that he will engage in for the next three years. And in verses 10 through 12, uh, the Spirit leads Jesus out into the desert. Uh, Jesus overcomes the temptation of Satan. Uh, He did what Adam failed to do in the garden paradise, but Jesus overcomes that temptation. He does so as our representative. He does so to to do that which Adam failed to do and which we fail to do every day. And he is becoming this perfect sacrifice for our sins where he will go to the cross uh, three years later. Uh, And so after this probationary period uh, in the wilderness, Jesus uh, in verses 14 and 15 15 tells us uh, that he came... um, into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so, so Jesus, uh, the Son of God, he's inaugurated into his public ministry, and he's declaring that the time is fulfilled, that everything was leading up to this time in history where the, the eternal Son of God uh, uh, would become flesh without ceasing to be God, would be fully God, fully man, and one person, two natures, one person. And, and he declares uh, that the time is fulfilled, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, the kingdom of God is, is breaking into time through the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, through the preaching of Christ. And he declares, repent for, and believe this gospel. Turn from sin and believe this gospel. Well, uh, we come this evening to verses 16 through 20, uh, verses which take us to probably about a year or so uh, after these events that we have been uh, considering. Um, and we uh, learn about some of these things from the gospel of John, verses 1, 35 through 41, of which we will touch upon uh, a little later. But we want to consider these five verses in this narrative. They may seem to be uh, sort of frontal matter, uh, unimportant verses that don't tell us a whole lot other than uh, that these disciples were called by Christ and decided to follow him. But there are things we can learn uh, from this section that I think are important uh, for uh, the church, for our Christian lives. Now, uh, Jesus uh, was um, uh, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. What do we know about the Sea of Galilee? What do we know about where Jesus was? Well, this was a freshwater lake fed by the Jordan River, and it was located about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, the lake was 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, and it was surrounded, especially on the south side, by steep cliffs and sharply rising mountains. Um, on the east uh, of, this mountains, of these mountains rise uh, um, mountains to 3,000 feet uh, in altitude. And so it was a beautiful, uh, majestic uh, site. Uh, at times, cool winds would come and rush down uh, on this lake and stir up violent storms. We, of course, learn about this, these storms from Mark chapter 4. The fishing industry thrived on the Sea of Galilee. And there were no less than nine cities with populations of at least 15,000 people that were fishing cities or villages on the Sea of Galilee. One final interesting fact about the Sea of Galilee is that Jesus performed almost all of his 33 recorded miracles um, on the shore of this sea. He did this around this beautiful lake, demonstrating his divine power over evil and disease and over nature itself and the calming of the storm. And so we can envision where Jesus uh, was. Uh, he's walking along the shore of this marvelous sea, this beautiful setting, and he sees Simon Peter and his brother Andrew as they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. The way that they fished back then, of course, is similar to the way some continue to fish today, casting their net in the sea, forming a big circle with this net and this net had weights on the outside, and it would sink down, and it would catch fish, and then they would 
uh, pull the fish up into their boats. This was the idea. As these men were busy doing this, Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, whether or not there was more conversation than this, we don't know. There likely was, you know, in the old Jesus movies from the 1960s, you know, you'd have the uh, the tall, skinny Jesus, like a robot, just saying, follow me. And then they would drop their nets, and then they would kind of follow him behind. And there's probably more to it than that, you know. It's probably more, more human, more, more said. But, but this was the call, uh, to follow him. And it says in verse 18, if you'll look there uh, with me, and immediately, there's that word immediately again. Remember, Mark is a fast action, fast-paced uh, gospel. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Then Jesus, Simon Peter, and Andrew together walked down the shore a bit and saw James and John. They were the sons of a man named Zebedee, and along with their father and the hired servants, these men were busy mending their fishing nets when Jesus called them to follow him. How did they respond? They left their nets and followed him. And so here in verses 16 through 20, it's quite evident that Jesus Christ formally calls his first disciples into an intense school of discipleship, into an intense school of spiritual growth and training. It's what, in a sense, Christ does with everyone that he calls to himself. We are called not into a life where Jesus is kind of an afterthought, but we're called into a life of intense discipleship. We say, Pastor, I'm not a seminary student. I'm not a, I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I, am I called to this intense school of discipleship? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. That in the midst of your life, even as you have a full-time calling to some uh, vocation in the world, there is a sense in which your number one priority is as a follower of Jesus Christ, to honor and to glorify him, through what he's called you to do, and then, of course, in your relationship with the church uh, and with fellow Christians, you are called into spiritual discipleship and growth in grace. What are some things that we can learn from this text, reading this in, in 2023? There are four important points, which I believe emerge from this text, that are worthy of our consideration this evening. The first one is this. Christ called the disciples to a unique and holy purpose. Christ called his disciples to a unique and a holy purpose. Let me begin explaining this first point by stating that many of us have been taught to interpret texts like this from a very individualistic standpoint, that, that sort of every text in the Bible is about me, right? I have to kind of read myself into it. We need to be careful about doing that. Um, rather than thinking of the big picture, we sometimes reduce everything down to sort of hyper-relevant and practical points for personal living. In a sense, every text will impact us on some level, but how we arrive at this application is, is another story altogether. In the text before us, we must be careful not to simply insert ourselves in here as fishers of men, as the apostles were. For these men were called to a unique and a holy calling, a calling which primarily involved preaching God's word for the salvation of souls. In Mark 3.14, it says this, 
And Christ appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And so these disciples were called to a specific calling, a a holy calling. These ordinary fishermen um, become fishers of men in that they are called to become proclaimers of the gospel uh, to men and women and boys and girls who will by grace be born again, by grace through faith, and thereafter nourished in God's word as they continue to receive it through the regular preaching of God's word on the Lord's day. And so all throughout the book of Acts, we see these same apostles preaching the word of God for the salvation of souls. Why? Why do they do this? Because it was and still is God's chosen method or means by which sinners are brought to spiritual life and sustained in it. This is precisely why the Apostle Paul, knowing his time had come to an end, spent his last words uh, exhorting his disciple Timothy to preach the word. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and correct with complete patience and teaching. Now, Few lay people would interpret Paul's words to Timothy about preaching as a call for all Christians to preach. And yet with the text before us, we've heard teaching regularly that, that uh, we are all fishers of men. We quickly go to that. And in a, sense, in a sense we are, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but we need to recognize the unique calling of the disciples and the apostles here. Uh, and we see this set forth, of course, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. The apostles were called to a special and a unique calling. This brings much needed understanding to the church member who uh, is, uh, is thinking about the roles of the church and the roles of pastors and, and elders. Uh, there's been a kind of uh, priesthood of all believers run amok theology in evangelical church where there's this idea, well, you know, uh, uh, we're all pastors, we're all priests, and you know, there really shouldn't be any uh, division of labor there. Well, no, there is a holy calling. There's an ordination, a setting apart that we see in the New Testament that's important to uh, remember. Uh, and so it's through preaching, it's through these men being set apart, being taken from one vocation as fishermen and placed in another as, as disciples and, and later apostles that they will proclaim the riches of Christ in the gospel. Let's go on now to point number two. Point number two. Christ called four men who required a great deal of growth. We need to see that here in this text, and we see this throughout the Gospels. These four fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, did not catch the eye of Jesus because they were extraordinarily gifted and godly men in their own right. They were in need of some serious discipleship. In some ways, you might liken them to a a brand new uh, seminary student, uh, perhaps. Um, You know, sometimes uh, men will go right from undergraduate right into seminary, and and, uh, let's just say they're rough around uh, the edges. Uh, And so uh, here um, here are these four men. Uh, Mark calls them out of this life of, of fishing, Uh, and calls them into this uh, labor of discipleship. One commentator uh, helps to make it clear 
uh, that who these men were, uh, and of course, he, he gives Bible verses along with it from the book of Mark. We won't look at all these verses, but I'll name a few of them. But uh, these men are described in the gospel of Mark as, one, lacking spiritual understanding, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 and 13, chapter 8 and verse 4, uh, lacking in compassion, chapter 6, 35 and 36, chapter 10, 13 and 14. Uh, not only lacking spiritual understanding and compassion, but lacking humility, chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. Uh, fourthly, lacking a forgiving heart, chapter 10, verse 41. Uh, uh, sixthly, uh, lacking, or fifthly rather, lacking perseverance in prayer, chapter 9, 28 and 29. Uh, and finally, lacking courage, chapter 14 and verse 50, 66 and 72. They fled Christ in his hour of need. So here are these men lacking spiritual understanding, compassion, humility, a forgiving heart, perseverance in prayer, and courage. And these were the disciples of Jesus Christ. Why didn't Christ go to Galilee uh, Seminary? the Reformed Seminary there, or to uh, the king's palace and find men who were more refined, who were more educated, who were more godly? Uh, why did he choose common fishermen for such an uncommon cause? Precisely because God is pleased to choose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He takes people unexpectedly, and he brings them into ministry, uh, even though uh, they are the weak and the foolish. God enjoys confounding the wisdom of this world with his unsearchable wisdom. Christ called four men who required growth, but he also called four men who would display a great deal of growth. So they required growth, but they also displayed growth throughout uh, their lives. This is the third point. Christ called four men who would display a great deal of growth. God grows his followers. He matures his followers. Christ leads his true followers into ever-increasing measures of spiritual maturity. We see this exemplified in the lives of these four men, don't we? Let's think, first of all, of Simon Peter. Did he grow? Did he mature? Think about Peter. First of all, in the Gospels and all the blunders and foibles and foolish things he said, and then think about his letters of 1 and 2 Peter. What growth, what maturity took place? He went on from being an impetuous, self-centered man who publicly denied Christ three times uh, to, a, uh, to turning into a man of great humility and courage. Peter is named first in every list of the apostles and is also called the rock, the Petros, by Christ. How about Andrew? Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 40 and 42. John, and then in John 6, 8 and 9. Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. James, he was the first martyr. Acts 12, 1 and 2. Uh, John... Uh, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Gospel uh, of John. These four men were chosen by Christ 
not so that they can continue in their sinful ways, but so that they would be transformed by following Jesus, transformed by the Spirit of God as they followed Christ. They were being transformed, and their calling was to bring others under his lordship through the preaching of the good news of God's grace. And so here we have God calling these fishermen to follow him, to have this unique calling to proclaim the gospel, to be fishers of men, and to bring others uh, to Jesus. He did not call perfect men far from it, but men who would grow in grace uh, and be used in his hand, uh, which is true of every minister and every elder that he calls into his service. Fourthly, Christ calls all his followers to assist the fishermen. Christ calls all of his followers to assist the fishermen. All of Christ's followers in the first century were not apostles, and all of Christ's followers in the 21st century are not ordained elders. Even so, there is a responsibility of every follower of Christ to be his witnesses, and in some sense, to be fishers of men. The question remains, though, how? How do we become faithful fishers of men as a kind of wider application of assisting um, uh, the ministers, the elders, in being fishers of men? The the number one thing here, uh, write this down, is living a godly life. Living a godly life. Matthew 5.16 says this. Jesus says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We want to give off the aroma of Christ. We want our lives to be adorned with the fruit of the gospel. We are not the gospel. We are not the good news. The gospel is the gospel that Christ died for sinners and he's raised from the dead. That's the good news. We're never the good news. But, but as those who believe the good news and who abide in Christ, our lives ought to, in increasing measure, be adorned with the fruit of the gospel so that we are loving our neighbor, so that we are living lives that are different than what we see in the world. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says this, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see our respectful and pure, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So this this encouragement of of Peter uh, to wives with unbelieving husbands to live such a life so that uh, something powerful will be communicated to them by the life that, that, that they're living in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the presence of their husband that would potentially draw them uh, is uh, communicating to us in a, in a wider sense that we are called to live godly lives in this present evil age. And that's part of our, our witness of, of, of leading others to Christ. People will notice. People will notice. People will ask you why, why you seem so different. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word. 
demonstrate by your godly behavior that you are following the beat of a different drum than the drums of this world. A drum that is being played by Christ and his word, which leads us uh, to a life of godliness. When people around you notice over a period of time that you are growing in grace, that you are walking in humility, as did the four disciples, they will, by God's grace, take notice and express interest in what makes you different. Of course, this doesn't happen with everyone, but it happens with some. And this is the first part about being fishers of men. Secondly, be committed uh, to Lord's Day piety. Be committed to the life of the church. One of the greatest ways that we as Christians can express the impact of the gospel upon our lives is the sanctifying or setting apart as Sunday as a day of worship and rest. More and more we are losing uh, Sunday as a day of worship and rest. This is what used to mark us out in the culture as Christians. It's what used to mark ancient Israel out, well, and still does mark Israel out, those who keep their Jewish Sabbath on Saturday from the rest of the nations around them. As Christians, we are different than the world around us because we commit ourselves to a day of worship and discipleship and fellowship the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so to be faithful fishers of men, we want to be committed to that which will make us more godly, that which will uh, feed and nourish our faith uh, through the means uh, of, of grace. And one of the greatest ways, of course, to reach out to the lost is to bring them into the midst of the covenant community, uh, to bring them into the midst of the worshiping church. Um, this has been the case with some of you who have led people to the Lord. I remember many years ago inviting uh, a fellow teammate uh, to church, and he literally had never been to church in his entire life, and he was from Atlanta, Georgia in the South, in the, in the Bible Belt, never been to church from a completely secular family. And I shared the gospel with him on a road trip, and, and he um, showed interest, and, uh, and then he came to church, and, and he, he prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. And it's, it's uh, 20-something years later, and he's still walking with the Lord, and and sharing his testimony, and sharing the gospel with others, and, 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 and the simple invitation uh, to church and to, to talk about the things of the Lord. This is the way that we are fishers of men, and, and so let's pray about how we might be more faithful uh, as fishers of men. We certainly all have a failure of nerve at times. We uh, find ourselves overly busy. We miss all kinds of opportunities to share the gospel. Every one of us in this room, it's true of all of us, but by the grace of God, by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, let's pray for more zeal to reach out to the lost, to get into those gospel conversations, to invite people to church, um, to, uh, uh, to come up with creative ways uh, to communicate the good news of, of the gospel. 
we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And, of course, that is what happens uh, here. Uh, so let us, that's the third point, is to be, let us be willing to share uh, God's truth. Uh, you may not be the most articulate person uh, in uh, the world or the most gifted in confronting people in their sin. Uh, even so, all followers of Christ, in a sense, uh, need to be ready and willing uh, to share uh, the gospel. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. There are some who take some of the principles that I have set forth to an extreme in the Reformed faith. And they say things like this. The ministers are the ones who are called to preach and to share the gospel and to win people to Christ. It is the job of the laity to pray for them as they do so. And it's not their responsibility and it's not a part of the charge of Christ to share the gospel and to seek to win others uh, to Christ. But I would uh, take umbrage with that. Um, I believe that there are secondary and tertiary applications to these kinds of texts. But here we have a very direct one, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom... I'm reading the wrong verses here. I'm in, I'm in chapter 2. All right. Those are good verses, though. Remember those, all right? Write those down. Memorize them. First Peter chapter 3, not chapter 2, and verse 15. Um, let's back up to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, listen always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we see two things here. Number one, Peter is writing to ordinary Christians in Asia Minor. He's not writing to theologians. He's not writing to seminarians. He's not writing to pastors. This is not a pastoral epistle. He's writing to ordinary Christians. And he's saying, be ready. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And then he tells you how to do it, okay, with gentleness and respect. And that is the model evangelism, sharing with others the hope that is within you, the gospel hope, and doing it with gentleness and respect. So we can learn a lot from this story of Christ calling his first disciples we learn that, number one, the apostles were called to be fishers of men through the preaching of the word of God. Similarly, pastors or teaching elders are called to be fishers of men through the preaching of the word. As in the case of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the men that God calls are imperfect men, but those whom God will increasingly transform over time through his word and spirit. I and every other preacher are under the same means of grace that you are. I am under my own preaching. That kind of sounds strange, doesn't it? But I am under my own preaching. I am to submit to what it is that I am preaching. I receive the same spiritual nourishment at the table that you do. I am under the ministry of Christ as you are. I worship together with you 
I'm not just performing some duty in front of you. I am under the means of grace and under the lordship of Christ and needing the nourishment of Christ as much as you need it. Uh, And so sometimes I'm asked, you know, Pastor, when do you take your Sabbath? On the Sabbath? When do you think I take my Sabbath? I take it on the Sabbath. Oh, you mean when do I take a day off? Oh, okay. I'm being a smart aleck here. I take my day off on Monday. But Sunday is my Sabbath. Pastor, you're not resting. The Sabbath was never meant to be a day where we take a nap all day. And have family fun day and watch NFL football for eight hours and do whatever. The Sabbath is a day of rest from our ordinary labors and a rest in Christ through the means of grace and fellowship. And so the Sabbath is actually a day that gets quite busy and where there's a lot of activity going on, but it's a day of discipleship. And so it's not a day of spiritual mediocrity. It's a day of spiritual action. And it's glorious. And so at the end of the day, there's kind of a, a, a glorious satisfaction and, and fullness, like, like you've just eaten a wonderful meal, and you're just satisfied and, gra- and, and grateful and filled up for the week as you go into your new, your new week. And so... so we recognize this passage as teaching that Christ has called these men into a discipleship relationship, and every, every pastor is called to be in that relationship with Christ as he follows him uh, along with the people of God, even as he leads and shepherds the people of God. Secondly, secondly, what we learn here in this passage is that all followers of Christ are to be witnesses for Christ and his gospel. You can accomplish this through holy living, God-centered worship on the Lord's Day, and taking the opportunities presented to you to impart God's gospel to them, to bring them to church, to hear the truth that is proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we want our neighbors to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. We want them to hear that Christ lived a righteous life in the place of sinners. We want them to hear that that Christ gave his righteous life for the unrighteous, that he died for us. We want them to hear that Christ rose from the dead. We want them to hear these things because faith comes by hearing this gospel. The Holy Spirit works as the gospel is preached and he brings people from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so we want people to be under that preaching. And we pray that they would come to know the Lord through it. And so, dear ones, may our lives, by God's grace, be living testimonies to the grace of God that is at work in us, thereby giving off a sweet aroma of Christ to all of those whom he will irresistibly call to himself. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this passage, which on the face of it does not appear to have much to say to us by way of our Christian lives, and yet it says so much. It says so much to preachers. It says so much to to Christians in the pew, to all of us who are 
ourselves followers of Christ, some as ministers in a unique way, as those who are set apart to proclaim the gospel, to shepherd uh, the church of God, and, and yet, Lord, all of us are called to be fishers of men. We pray, Lord, that by your grace, through our union with Christ, uh, that we would uh, live lives that are increasingly pleasing to you and godly and, and different from the ways of this world, that we would not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would give off the aroma of Christ, that people would be drawn to him, even as we share the gospel with them. Oh Lord, give us opportunity upon opportunity, even this week, to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends and neighbors. And we pray they'd come to know you, that they'd be born again by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.